We are going to get into the message for today. We're going to be in, uh, continuing our series in the book of John, chapter 6. All right. John, chapter 6, verses 15 through 71. Okay, I know, 15 through 71, there's a lot of verses. <laughs> Some of you, oh, 15 through 71. Yes, 15 through 71, because as I was, as I was preparing this message, I just felt like this was the best way to do it. Maybe I'm wrong. This is just where we are, where we are. And I will do my best to preach these 56, 57, however many verses there are here uh, today. Um, Let's get into this. Uh, In verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, if you remember, if you were here uh, last week in verses 1 through 13, 14 or so, we saw um, Jesus do one of the most amazing miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, where he took five pieces of of barley bread, five barley loaves, two pieces of fish, and miraculously fed 5,000 men with that, which means that there were probably, with women and children, maybe 20,000 people there, at least 10,000 conservatively. A tremendous miracle that Jesus performed where he fed masses and crowds of people. Now, these people were amazed at this, and because of what they experienced, it says that they wanted to come and make Jesus king by force. They're like, this is the greatest thing. Jesus just gave us a free lunch. This is absolutely amazing. We need this guy to be our king. So they tried to make him king by force. Now, Jesus avoided this, though, and it says in verse 16, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, we're going to come back to this again near the end of the message for today. Okay, but we're just going to bookmark that. We'll come back to that, mention it again near the end of the sermon. Moving on, it says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they couldn't find Jesus. Where is this guy who fed 20,000 people? So they got into the boat to go to the other side of the sea looking for Jesus. Now, I'm going to read from 25 straight down to 71. I'm going to do my best audiobook voices, everything that I can to keep you engaged and from getting lost here. And, and God willing, God willing, you will do your best and we will be able to follow and, and keep up with this. But um, I'm going to read 25 down to 71, okay? So they get to the other side of the sea. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of God. Now, what? Oh, please, please, I didn't write it, just read it. Um, now, I know that's, that's a really long passage here, and I, you know, as I was reading this, what, what does this really come down to? What is this all about? This, this, this whole discourse that Jesus has with the crowds of people there. Why did these people come looking for Jesus? Why were they looking for him when he was gone? 
They, 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 they took boats. They, they went looking for him. It was like a search party with thousands of people trying to find him. Why? Because Jesus gave them a free lunch. He multiplied that bread. He multiplied that fish. People participated in this miraculous miracle. They ate and their stomachs were filled. There were 12 basketfuls of food left over. Jesus fed them. And because of this, they were looking for them. They were looking for him. They wanted to find him. And what do they say to him? They, they said, Jesus, what are you doing here? When did you get here? And Jesus said to them, I know why you came. Not because of the sign, not because of what I did in multiplying the fish and the bread and the sign that it points to something greater, but because you had a free lunch. That's why you came. And the people there, these people were saying to him, you know, we want to believe in you. But Moses gave us manna in the desert. What will you do so that we believe in you? What sign will you give us? Now, this is kind of strange when you think about it. Jesus just fed 20,000 people. Why are they saying, what sign will you do? Jesus just did the most amazing sign, did he not? That they were literally able to eat this sign that he performed. Why are they here saying, what sign will you do? Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. Now, if you, if you remember in that time, Messianic fever was very high. People were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They were looking for him. And one thing that the Old Testament said about the Messiah is Moses said, God will raise up a prophet for you like me. Somebody who would be like Moses. So here comes this Jesus, able to miraculously feed 20,000 people. People are like, is this the prophet? Is this the one who was like Moses? And what they're saying is, if you are Jesus, if you are that prophet, then prove to us you're the one like Moses. Moses fed our forefathers in the wilderness three square meals a day of manna for 40 years. And now, Jesus, we want you to do the same thing. You fed us one meal. That's a good start. Not bad. Maybe a little golf clap for you there, Jesus. But Moses fed us for 40 years. Now, what are you going to do for us? Start feeding us as well. What does Jesus do? He corrects them. He says to them, first of all, it wasn't Moses who fed you, okay? It was God. It was God the Father. It was not Moses. It was God who fed you. But I want you to know something as well. What Jesus is telling the people is that the food that Moses gave you, 40 years of manna, was was meant to be a prophecy. It was a prophecy. It was a sign to you of how God would one day give you real food, how he would feed you, not just your bellies, but your spirit. You see, because whenever anybody ate manna, a few hours later, guess what? They were hungry again, and they had to eat again. Guess what? Your forefathers who were in the desert for 40 years eating this miraculous food from God, you know what happened to them? They all died, every single one of them, even though they ate manna. That was physical food. It was miraculous. It was from God, but it was still physical. It was meant to point you to somebody else who would come and not give you a physical food, but would give you something else, real food. Real food that would feed not your body, but your spirit that would truly, truly nourish you. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. John uses seven a lot, seven miracles, seven I am statements, because seven was a number of perfection God created the heavens and the earth in six days. He rested on the seventh. It was very symbolic. John was using that symbolism. Whenever Jesus says, I am, it points back to the word Yahweh, which means I am in the Old Testament. Jehovah, right? The four letters, the tetragrammaton. Jesus is saying he is God when he says, I am. I am the bread of life. Later on, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way and the truth. I am the true vine. These all come up in the Gospel of John, seven I am statements. This is the first one that he makes here to the people. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, why bread? Why does Jesus choose bread? Because bread was the main staple of people's diet back then in that ancient Near East, in that ancient Mediterranean world. 
Bread was the main staple. If you didn't have bread, you died. It's not like today, all you low-carb people, right? Not me, obviously, but keto, paleo, whatever. You're like, you want to kill bread, right? Very different. Back then, bread was life. Bread was life. If you didn't have bread, you would die. Jesus, that's why he chose bread. I am the bread of life. I am the source of true nourishment in life. You don't, if you don't have me, you go hungry. You die without me. Jesus is saying, I am real food. That's what he's telling the crowd. I am real food. Stop, stop settling for physical food. Stop settling. Stop looking for manna and free lunches. Stop gorging yourself on empty calories. I am the one from God. If you believe in me, you will have real food. Jesus wants us to have real food. I know some of you know this story I told years ago, but uh, when, I, when I was, uh, this is a story of when I first had a fig. You, you know figs, the, the fruit? When I was growing up, my only conception of figs were fig newtons, because I grew up in the 80s, now in the 90s. I, I know you guys, fig newtons, you probably never even had one, but that was all I knew about figs. Figs were these blocks. They had this purplish-looking pasty stuff that was really too sweet, and it was covered with this kind of cookie crumb. I knew, I knew the cookie stuff was not fig, okay? I wasn't that dumb. But the inside, that was fig, this purple block. And I didn't like it. It was too sweet. It was weird. And then a few years ago, several years ago, Christine and I, we had the privilege of going on vacation and visiting our friends in Italy. And we, we got to visit them and stay with them. And, and um, our friends took us to, to different places to go look around, and one day, uh, Giancarlo, our friend, he took us up into some of these towns that were up in the mountains just to walk around and look, and we were walking around in these beautiful towns, and, and he says, Ulysses, look, look at that tree. That's a fig tree. Those are figs. I said, those are figs? He says, yes. I was like, where's the cookie crust that goes around it? He said, no, these are figs, and I looked at it, and he plucked it off the tree, and he said, go ahead, take one and eat it. And I looked at it, this like greenish round thing with a little stem. And I said, just eat it just like that? He said, yeah, eat it. And I, and I popped it in my mouth and I ate it. And it was delicious. It was delicious. Wow, it was not too sweet. Like Fig Newtons, it was juicy. It, was, it has this wonderful flavor, this taste. And I realized that Nabisco had lied to me for all of those years because for the first time in my life, I had a real fig. I had real, not fig newtons. I had real figs. It's like when, when you Californians come to me and say, hey, Ulysses, I'm going on a trip to New York, and where should I go get pizza? My answer lately has been the same every time. Scars, Lower East Side. Go there. You will thank me later. And then you go there, and you have it, and you come back, and you go, Ulysses, oh my gosh, that was so amazing. It was like I never had pizza before. I said, that's right. If you grew up in California, you haven't. You haven't had real pizza until you go to New York. And then the Italians say, forget New York, come to Italy, right? Real, real pizza, real food, real food. Jesus doesn't want us to settle for the fake stuff, for the empty calories of this world. He says, in me, when you come to me, when you believe in me and you walk with me in relationship with me, there is real food, real life for you that will fill the stomach of your soul, that will give you true nourishment and sustenance in this life. The, the, the problem is that we tend to think, the people in this world, we tend to think that there's something out there aside from Jesus or multiple things in this world that will really fill us, that will really fill us, that will really satisfy us, that will really take away the hunger, the emptiness that we have. Some people don't think there's anything like that. And then and then you're, you're walking in a really dark place, but most people tend to think that there's something out there if I get it. There's an article online I read called, it was titled, A Therapist Shares the Nine Things People Want Most in Life. Forget everything else. I'm not going to go through all nine, but here's the top few. Here's the top few things that this therapist said after years of counseling people, the top things that people believed that, that they needed, that they wanted most in life. The first one was to be loved. Surprise, surprise. But you know what? Um, I know not everybody comes from a, a great family or has great parents, but for many of us, there are a few, few people in this world that will love you more than your parents do with the unconditional type of love that they showed you. But I'm sure most of us would go, uh, that's not enough. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm I'm talking about something else. That's great. I'm so glad that my parents love me in that way, but I'm looking for something more than that. Or maybe you're saying, well, if I get that love through friends, if I get that love through finding a significant other, that's what I really need in life. But friends, you go ask anybody who's married. Hey, you're married. I'm not married. I want to be married. You're married. Now that you're married and you found the love of your life, do you feel like you have everything that you need in your life and your life is fulfilled and perfect and filled? Most couples, if they're honest, they'll say, no way. Even if they come from a good marriage and they, and they love their spouse, they would probably say, no, no, I don't feel that everything in my life is now set because I got married. They probably wouldn't say that. But John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John tells us that there is a God who loves you so much, so much, that he gave his own son's life. Jesus came and died upon a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins and become children of God. God did that. This world has seen no greater love ever than the love that God has displayed to us in giving his son for us. What we need deepest in terms of love comes from God. Another thing that the therapist shared was the people are looking to be understood. I get that, right? People want to be understood. But you know what the reality is for most people? Most people in this world, you probably, maybe many of us in this room, you don't have somebody in your life who you have opened up to about everything in your life. How many of us have somebody in our lives who knows every single thing about you, all your deepest, darkest secrets, the things you're most ashamed of, your fears, you've told it all to them? How many of us have somebody like that in our lives? And if you do, by the way, you also need somebody who, who, who doesn't like hear all these things and go, ew, <laughs> gosh, get away from me. I didn't know you were that messed up. So by consequence, it also needs to be somebody who loves us. So we need number one and number two here. You need somebody who knows you that you can open up to fully in that way and loves you and won't reject you. And by the way, you need them to understand you perfectly, who knows everything about you, how you think, your background, who you are. How many of us can find people like that in our lives? When it comes to God, we prayed through this at Tuesday night prayer meeting. In Psalm 139, it says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The psalmist says that God knows everything about you because he made you. Before you even speak a word, he knows what you're going to say. This God knows every single thing about you, and he loves you, and he gave his son for you. You are known fully by God. Another thing that the therapist said, people desire to have power, to have power. I take that to mean to to be able to control your life, to control your environment, to control your future, rather than than going through with with a lack of control. But the problem with that is, friends, you can't control your life. You can't control this world. We live in an uncontrollable world. I mean, war can break out at any moment, all the time. Right now, all the news says, this is the U.S. going to be dragged into a war in the Middle East and all these different things going on. We, we don't know. The economy can collapse at any moment. Right now, everybody's like, are we going to have a soft landing? Are we going to be able to land this plane okay? We can't guarantee that the economy won't collapse, that there won't be more layoffs. You can eat healthy, you can exercise every single day and still get cancer. Tim Keller once put it this way. He said, you want want to talk about control? We are on a rock, spinning rock, hurtling through the universe at thousands of miles per hour. And God forbid we don't get hit by an asteroid that wipes out humanity. And you're talking about control? (laughs) You want to have control in your life? 
If you really want to have control, that also means you need to control other people. Because like Dante said, hell is other people. Other people make life uncomfortable when they don't do things the way you want them to do. And then you're very, you, you head down the road to becoming a tyrant <laughs> when you need to control everyone around you to make life the way you want it to be. Or, or you can choose to trust in the God who, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He holds the entire universe in his hand by the word of his power. He holds everything together. You could trust in this God who is so sovereign and completely in control that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't fear because you know God is in control. Mark Twain once said, I love the calm, cool, collected demeanor, I'm paraphrasing here, of a Christian who walks around like he has four aces in his back pocket. He observes something about Christians who just, when you know that God is in control, you don't need to be in control because you trust that this God who knows you and loves you is in control of all things. One last one here. The therapist said to have freedom. We, we long and desire to have freedom. Don't we all want freedom? Not need to, to not need to punch in the clock or you know, to, to worry about that deadline, to worry about money, to be able to do whatever I want to do. Friends, but here's the thing. Being free to do whatever you want to do, which sounds like a really nice thing, it doesn't mean at the end of the day that you're doing something worthwhile with your life, something meaningful. I remember John Piper preached this really famous sermon many years ago about not wasting your life, basically. And he was preaching and, and he was talking about how, you know, so many people, we want that freedom. We just want to retire. That's the goal of life, make enough money, retire, you know, drive around the little golf court carts and go golfing and then sit on the beach all day and go and collect seashells. And then he said, one day when you stand before God and God looks at you and says, what did you do with your life? You're going to come and you're going to take out all those shells. You can say, God, look at my shells. And he said, is that what your life is going to be about? You have the freedom to do whatever you wanted to. And you're going to say to God, look, Lord, look at all of my shells. Is that just because you have freedom in life? doesn't mean you're really living it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians says that the alternative is you recognize that you are God's workmanship. You were made by him. You were made by him to do good works. These good works were prepared beforehand by God so that you can do them. The alternative is to know that you were made by God for so much more, that you were made by God for a purpose and you seek that purpose. You seek to walk out that purpose and you live a life truly of meaning, truly of meaning and purpose. That's what we seek to do with our freedom. Real food is in God. When we seek these other things, they're empty calories. They don't satisfy. There's an article in Forbes too, the top eight things people desperately desire but can't seem to attain, just in case you don't have time to read nine things from a therapist. Okay, I added that part on, but um, I'm not going to go through it, but the, just tell you the number one thing that they wrote in their list, happiness. Happiness. And I think that just, I think that's enough said there. If the number one thing that people desperately desire but can't seem to attain is happiness, that is a self-indicting statement of how things in this world are not real food. They will not ultimately satisfy your soul or fulfill the reason that you were made. You were made by God. Augustine said in Confessions, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our hearts are restless. Our stomachs are empty. 
until we find our rest in God. That is the only place. The psalmist in chapter 37 said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Those are not separate statements there. Those are two intricately woven together things there. When you delight yourself in the Lord, you will have the desires of your heart because it is only in delighting in the Lord that you have the thing you most need. God. God. When you delight in God, you have the desires of your heart because you were made to be in a relationship with God. But friends, this is, this is so easy to miss. We can, we can, we can just seek and, sat- and seek to satisfy ourselves with these empty calories instead of this real food from God. Now, here's the thing. This real food that is offered to us, it's so amazing because Jesus said that this is something that can only be received. It's something that we can't even earn. The people said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So how do we get this food, this real food? Jesus says, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do in order to earn this free gift of God. It is something that you must receive from God simply by believing. This is, you know, when Christians say it is by grace through faith alone in Christ that we are saved. Trusting in the work of God, none of us are good enough. None of us can earn this salvation We have to freely receive it from God. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 55, verse 1. He said, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. How contradictory. How do you you buy something that has no cost? How do you buy if you have no money? How do you come and buy and eat and drink with no money? He was prophesying about how Jesus would be real food for our soul. You don't have the money to buy it. And even if you did, it can't be bought. It can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in this world, we always tend to think that we need to work for it, that we need to earn it somehow. Again and again, we see that in the Bible. The Samaritan woman, she said, "Uh, give me this water so that I would be able to not thirst anymore. Um, The rich young ruler said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? On the day of Pentecost, the Jews said to Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Philippian jailer said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The prodigal son said, father, make me one of the hired servants. They all thought that there was something that they had to do in order to earn this salvation. But it can only be received. Now, this real food, not only can you not earn it, not only can you only receive it, but the the, the second thing is that even receiving it is something that is a gift from God. Even the ability to believe that Jesus died for you upon the cross, that in and of itself is not something that you can choose to do, but it is something that God does. He gives you the gift of faith to believe that Christ died for your sins. This is why Jesus said in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Later in the passage, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws me. You see, the reality is, because of our brokenness in sin, because we have rebelled and turned away from God, we cannot even believe in God if we wanted to, and we don't want to. That's what sin did. It turned our hearts away from God, and we've lived as our own gods ever since. And we cannot even believe. We cannot go to God. He has to draw us to him. Romans chapter 3 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We cannot choose God. God had to choose us. This is the incredible grace of God. Friends, if you're a Christian, this should give us tremendous confidence 
when we share the gospel with other people. Because we know it is not up to us to convince somebody that Jesus is Lord. It's not up to you to be eloquent enough. It's not up to you to have the answer to every single question, although you should try to do your best to answer people's questions and to do your best to be able to share the gospel in a, in a winsome way. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not up to you. All we have to do is to declare the message of the gospel and those whom God has chosen, he will draw to himself. It is the work of God from beginning to end. Now, maybe there are some of you out there, you're, maybe you're not a Christian, and you're there and you're going, well, if that's the case, what if I'm not chosen? If God hasn't chosen me, then how can I believe in him? Then am I here for no reason? Is this futile? This kind of goes to the, the whole Christian uh, debate or hot topic about predestination, that, that, that favorite topic amongst Christians. If God is in control, if he's sovereign, then does what I do matter? This whole debate about predestination. There's a, there's a joke that somebody that I heard a long time ago that, that goes like this. There's a pastor who went to visit one of his parishioners at his home. And this parishioner was very, very sick. He was critically ill. And the parishioner was there, and he would say, Pastor, Pastor, I'm, I'm really, really vexed right now. I don't know what to do. The pastor said, what, what's wrong? He said, I have this medicine. And the doctor told me if that I take this medicine, I will live. But Pastor, the problem is, I don't know if I should take this medicine because I don't know if I'm predestined to live or if I'm predestined to die. If I'm predestined to live, I want to take it. But if I'm predestined to die, I don't want to take it. I don't know what I should do. Pastor, what should I do? And the pastor said to him, very simple, my friend. If you take the medicine, you are predestined to live. If you don't take the medicine, you are predestined to die. What is he saying there? He's saying, silly man, <laughs> silly man, what are you so concerned about? Take the medicine, <laughs> take the medicine, and you'll live. You believe it's medicine, right? You believe it's not poison, right? You know that if you take it, you'll live, right? What's keeping you? Just take it. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Just take it. Friends, the Bible says that God is completely in control. True. And that he draws people to himself. True. But it also says, come. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So just come. Just come. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he was raised from the tomb for your life, that he is the only God of the universe, then come. Eat. Drink. Buy food without cost. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Just come. The door is wide open to you. So this real food that God offers us, that we could not earn but must receive by faith, and that we could not even believe with faith unless God had not first given us that faith, this real food that is offered to us God says, stop eating the empty calories of this world that will not give you joy, that will not give you satisfaction, that will not give you true life. The manna they in the wilderness, they still died. But if you eat this food that I give you, you will live forever. You will be in relationship with me, not only now in this life, but also in eternity, in the life to come, because you will experience forgiveness of your sin through Jesus. Now, here's, now if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, Here's what I really want us to ask ourselves this morning. Am I eating real food? Am I eating real food? Or are you just looking for a free lunch? Are you looking at Jesus the way the crowds did? We just want manna. We want you to provide for our physical needs. We want you to make our life more comfortable that's, at the end of the day, what we want from you. Brothers and sisters, is that you? Ask yourself, are you eating real food? Are you coming to Jesus for Jesus' sake because of who he is? Or are you coming because of some type of social contract that you've made with God? 
God, I know as long as I come to church, I read my Bible, I give, and you know, I, I don't go out and become a criminal or something, you will give me a moderately comfortable life. You will not let me suffer for extended periods of time. Cancer won't come into my family. My job will be decent. I'll have a slow, steady upward mobility. I will find that special someone in my life and have kids and whatever it might be that you dream about. The social contract, is that your relationship with Christ? That social contract, the manna. That's what I really want from you. What did Jesus do to these people, this crowd, this crowd that wasn't getting it, that just wanted physical food? What does he do? He presses the issue. He says, if you want this life, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's real food. I am the bread of life. And at this point, the people, the Jews, they were like, say what, Jesus? What? Talk about cannibalism? Eat your body? Drink your blood? I mean, I know that that's like repugnant to us, right? If you were to think about that literally, like if I were Jesus, I'd be real scared to preach that in case somebody really believed me, right? It's like, that's repugnant. But for the Jews who couldn't even eat any blood, they couldn't eat it. Leviticus said the life is in the blood. You cannot drink any blood. We, maybe you like your blood sausage. Maybe you like your steak bloody rare, right? We kind of are okay with that. Not the Jews, can't eat any blood because God said you can't. The life is in the blood. This was just unbelievably repugnant to them. But what was Jesus talking about? Was he talking about eating his physical body and drinking his real blood? No, he wasn't. He was talking about believing that his body, his body, when it died, when it was hung upon the cross, when the spear pierced his side, the, the crown of thorns on his head, his body that was broken on the cross was done for you. That his blood that was poured out when he was flogged on his back and when he was hung on the cross and he was bleeding out, that that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus wasn't saying, eat his physical body, drink his physical blood. He was saying, believe in what I will do, my sacrifice upon the cross for you. In me, believing in me comes true life. But they, they didn't see past this. Like Nicodemus who said, born again? how can I go into my mother's womb again? Like the Samaritan woman who said, living water, give me this water so I won't have to come back to this well again day after day. They, 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 they didn't understand this. And, and as an aside, friends, this is, uh, you know, I, I disagree with Roman Catholicism here, which teaches that when we take communion, uh, that there is this uh, theology of transubstantiation which says that the bread becomes physically, literally the body of Jesus, and the, the, the grape juice or the wine becomes literally the blood of Christ. I think that's a misinterpretation of John 6 and maybe other places. No, it's symbolic. It is symbolic. When we take it, when we eat it, when we drink it, we believe it's symbolism, but we believe God blesses us as we do that in faith. But these people, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They could not see past this physical view of him. He gives me food, makes my life easier. That's what we want. And you know what happened? At the end of the day, they walked away. They walked away. They said, this is weird. This is a hard teaching. You know what a shame that is? I said I'll go back to earlier. Jesus, when he walked on water, that was right in between this feeding of the 5,000 account in chapter 6. He fed them in the beginning part of the chapter. He walks on water, and now they come to him looking for more bread. The, the, the irony and the shame and the loss in this is so strong. You feel it so palpably. They were walking away from the, the, from the one who walks on water, the divine one, the divine one, because they wanted snacks from Jesus, because that's what their view, their understanding of what God is. Now, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to conclude here. I know for most of us, we're like, well, you know, I, I, I certainly, I know it's not literal blood. I know it's not literal uh, Jesus' flesh. I know what Jesus meant by this. I know it means believing in him. But, you know, we, we can't just rest at that because earlier, remember that part there when Jesus says to them, what does he say to them? Do you take offense at this? 
Remember Jesus said, it says, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now this is the part, please hear this, that I really want us to get, especially if you're a Christian. Are you offended by this? No, Jesus, I know you're not literally talking about your you're eating your body and your blood. I know it symbolizes the cross. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What does Jesus mean by this? I think this is what Jesus means. Now, there's, there's different views by different theologians about this. This is the view that I think is right. He's saying this, are you offended that I'm telling you you need to eat my body and drink my blood or else you can't, you can't have life? How about when you see the cross? You think you're offended now. Wait till you see the cross. Now, we may say, well, what about the part about ascending to where he was before? Well, the reason theologians think that this is the better view is because if we go back to John chapter 3 and Nicodemus, in verse 13, Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, ascending and descending. And then he pairs it with this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There is this um, connecting, melding together of the ascension of the Son, but the ascension of the Son onto the cross. Also, when he says, do you take offense at this? Then, then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The, The language makes it sound like, then what about when things get worse? What about when things get worse? So I think he's talking about the cross here. And now, Why is that relevant for us? Because, brothers and sisters, we know that we don't have to eat the body and the blood of Christ. We know that. We'll follow you, Jesus. We're not turned off like these people. And what Jesus would say is, really, okay, but what about when you see the cross? What about when you see that I have... What about when you really come face to face with the fact that the life that I'm calling you to live is the cross-shaped life? I am calling you, if you want to be my disciple, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. What about that? Do you you realize that? Friends, Jesus is saying, what about when, when, when you really have to start paying the price for being a follower of Jesus? At that time, will you still follow me? Or will you walk away like these other people. Why? Because because you made a social contract with God. Because your faith didn't go deeper than I go to church, I do certain things, God gives me a fairly comfortable life. In fact, God's not allowed to let real suffering come into my life or really difficult things or not let my dreams come true. Is that where your faith is at the level of this social contract? If it is, then what if you were to see the Son of Man on the cross? What if he were to say to you, come follow me? Son, daughter, it is time to pay the price. Like, like, like Peter says, don't be surprised when they revile you. Whoever wants to live a godly life will face trouble. Peter says, don't be surprised when people hate you because you are a Christian. Friends, do you know There are many places around the world throughout history and right now in this day and age where if you are a Christian, you will be persecuted in society. You could even be killed if you profess the name of Jesus. And that is not abnormal. You know what's actually probably more abnormal? That we've been living in a country that has a Judeo-Christian background for about 200 years. So Christians have enjoyed a place of relative safety and prosperity and peace now, we see things changing nowadays and, you know, in, in this life that we're living in now, this time. But there's, that's not necessarily normal, friends. The way of the cross is more normal. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They will hate you in this world. That is more normal. Jesus said that if you want to follow me, there are going to be times where, not times, but you cannot love your mother or your father more than me. You can't love your son or your daughter more than me. You need to have me as the very, very forefront top thing in your life above everything else. 
If you want to follow me, you cannot love this world or anything in this world. If you want to follow me, it means taking on, taking the towel and wrapping it around your waist like Jesus did and serving other people. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Anybody who wants to follow me, you also need to be the servant of all for that, for then you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's totally upside down. It's totally upside down. Brothers and sisters, if we are not feeding on real food, Jesus, I want to want you because of who you are, because you are the truth, you are the life, you are the way, because in you are the words of life. Where else will I go? Where else shall I go? If, if, if that's not where you are on a regular basis, seeking, seeking that authenticity in your relationship with God, if instead you're just settling for this social contract with God, then don't be surprised one day when the going gets tough, when the cost begins to become high, that like this crowd, you walk away. Even, even one of the 12, Judas Iscariot, who was there in the boat, who saw Jesus walking on the water, even him, friends, walked away. Brothers and sisters, it's, uh, you know, we got a lot of people in this room. To some people, that may, that may seem impressive that our church is growing and 200-something people. But brothers and sisters, that means nothing if we're eating empty calories, if we're not eating real food. Because when the day of trouble comes, 20 will become, 200 will become 20. 20 may become two. I may not even be in that two. I ain't that proud to say I'm definitely going to be in that two. That's going to be me and Christine. I may not be in that two if I'm not eating real food, if I'm eating the empty calories of this world. But when we eat real food, brothers and sisters, we come to the place, our heart is, Lord, where else shall I go? When you eat real food, when you come to Christ again and again and again for who he is, knowing him in his word and examining your life, God, those are empty calories. God, I've been, I've been putting this before you. This has been my joy. This is what I've been thinking I need more than you, whether it's a relationship or my job or money or success. God, and I repent of that. Lord, I want to feast upon real food. As you do that more and more, your heart grows for God. And in the midst of even times of suffering and counting the cost, you're able to say, Lord, where else shall I go? Where else shall I go? You and only you have the words of eternal life. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Invite the worship team up at this time.